Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com. Mouth Off is a podcast series brought to you by Forget-Me-Not Productions. I'm your host, Clary Sadler. It's a platform for marginalized groups to get their voices into the mainstream. Podcast episodes might celebrate successes while tackling taboo subjects. We might talk about things like disability, gender equality, race, religion, sexuality, mental health issues, substance abuse. The list goes on, really. Okay, so today we'd like to welcome onto the show Kieran Fitzgerald. Kieran is a disabled playwright from Southwest Wales. Welcome to the show, Kieran. Would you like to introduce yourself to us and tell us what it is you do in a nutshell? I'm from Port Albert. I'm a playwright and I recently graduated from the BA scriptwriting degree at the University of South Wales. I uh, worked with companies such as Nevertheless and Taking Flight and I'm currently under commission for two periods of R&D on a play that I've written with Pantadario Centre. So when did you first become interested in writing, Kieran? And do you remember the first piece you ever wrote? I kind of always wrote short stories or poems as a child in school, but they were never kind of plays. And in terms of writing theatre, when I was in sex form, I've been a performer in this theatre of mass since I was about 14, 15, and enjoyed performing. But it was when I was in sixth form that I decided I'm going to write something here, I'm going to write a play. So um, I decided to write a piece about disability discrimination, um, which I wrote over the summer of 2012 into 2018. It took me about a year to write that. But then I, my friend Reese and school helped me develop that. I gave it to Sarah Jones, who's the artistic director of Mass at the Mass, to read and she read it. And Mass at the Mass applied for money to put it on in the spring of that year. And it was great to have some development on that piece. The first thing I'd ever, I'd ever written properly for theatre. And it was fantastic to see it developed and then to see it performed by my friends in the theatre and to walk down that you've written on stage. It was such a fantastic experience. I realise now, looking back, that it wasn't my best work because it was the first thing I'd ever written. But still, seeing it on stage gave me a feeling of, I want to do this, you know, I want to do this professionally. And it was from there, really, that I decided I wanted to be a writer or have a go at being a writer as a profession. So would you also classify yourself as an activist then or would you say that comes with the themes you write about? Would you call yourself a disability activist and a playwright as one thing or would you say they are two separate identities? 
This because I don't write exclusively about those themes. I think it's important to diversify what I write about. And for me, as much as anything, to explore diverse stories from diverse people and really exploring different perspectives other than my own. And it's interesting where you divide those two things of being an artist and being an activist, because there are are elements of both in each. But I think there are times where one can feed into the other. But I think fundamentally that they should exist separate to one another, because it's fine to have... Actually, it's very good sometimes to have what you've written make a socio-political statement. But if that piece of work doesn't have a solid structure, strong characters, and is by logic good play, then the political statement that you're making will be pointless if the art isn't good. So it's that balance of making good art for the sake of making good art and saying something. And there's a level of subtlety to be found when you're writing that kind of work, not being so out there and so brash about it, or using characters as a mouthpiece for your ideas. It's about finding ways to get those themes across within work that doesn't bombard the audience with ideas or terminology that they might not agree with. There are going to be some people who won't agree with your point of view. And fundamentally, your job as a playwright still is to write a piece of entertainment, something that people will watch and something that people will enjoy. And I think, I, I didn't, this is not something that I thought at the beginning when I started writing, but now I kind of realise that any statement you want to make should be secondary to a tight narrative, a good story, and a, a deep and intriguing set of characters. I couldn't agree more. You've sort of already answered the question I was going to ask you next, which is to what extent, if any, does your personal experience influence your work? But what I will ask is, you said you liked writing poetry and short stories when you were younger. So I'm wondering, in in secondary school and primary school, uh, to what extent, if any, were these skills nurtured? And were you given the tools and interventions to help you succeed in these areas? And I suppose a good place to start would be for you to tell the listeners what your disability is, if you don't mind me asking. So, mostly, which was caused by brain damage when I was born. So, it just affects me physically. I don't have a learning disability. Um, it affects the way I walk, it affects my speech and my swallowing, and my balance and those sorts of things. But I went to a mainstream primary school, a mainstream secondary school, mainstream Welsh medium education, which when I was really small, it was quite, it was still quite unusual for someone like me to be in a mainstream school in, in the late 90s. Yeah. And my mum had to fight quite a lot to get me in mainstream school, but when I was there, I, I really thrived academically and I really enjoyed school for the most part and everything that was tricky. And I suppose in terms of creativity, that enjoying writing, 
it was that, it was nature, but I think and this is a general thing, I don't think it has anything to do with my disability. I think there was an emphasis on um, correctness or formality in terms of um, the formation of the ideas rather than using writing as a creative outlet. Like, it was more, this has to be correct. You have to teach the rules, the graphic rules and the linguistic rules in order for you to write. Almost write formulaically and analytically rather than creatively. There were opportunities to write creatively which I took and I really enjoyed. But for the most part, felt very formulaic. Mainly in primary school that was. In secondary, I felt I was more able um, to show my creativity then. But it was still, it was mainly, mainly writing short stories at that point. I didn't really consider writing drama at that point. It was, uh, it was encouraged, but maybe the school didn't give people generally the tools to use those skills. And I don't think the job of writer or writing as a career was encouraged or even kind of tabled as an option or an opportunity, if you know what I mean. So just to echo what you said earlier, your challenges are more to do with physical things. So I'm just thinking of subjects like drama, music, art and design, PE and games, things that you might require more physicality for, or that you might need specialist equipment to enable you to take part. Were there interventions and measures put in place that gave you equitable access to those areas of the curriculum in the same way that your non-disabled counterparts had? Well, I did um, a BTEC level three course at the college in performing arts. And as part of that course, there was a dance module. They called it a movement module. But blatantly, it was a dance module. And there was a brief discussion at the beginning of first year with I, the first movement lecturer I had in college. His understanding, he said, if there's anything you can't do, if you're not able to do something, just tell me and we'll work around that and shift the curriculum to you. But he was only my lecturer for the first three weeks of college. And then, I'm not sure why, but the dance lecture that we had, movement, sorry, <laughs> changed. And she didn't inquire as to what my nature was. She wasn't simple or empathetic as to what I could or couldn't do. And I felt there was a huge difference between first and second year as to what was being asked of us on that course. And it was a poorly articles, but there were three strands to it, and you could choose to specialise in one of the three strands. And I was specialising in acting. So we only had two hours of movement a week. But in those classes, I was made to feel inferior, like as if I wasn't meant to be there, as if I didn't belong there, uh, because I just physically couldn't keep up with the choreography that was that was being set for us. And how is it reasonable that I should be assessed on something like that when I'm going to struggle to do it anyway? 
I'd like to think that things have moved on quite a lot and that wouldn't happen in 2020. But I mean, you trained between 2014 and 2016 in college. That wasn't that long ago. You would have thought that society had progressed enough that your lecturers would at least be able to differentiate to ensure that they met your needs and the needs of any other individual with a protected characteristic. Exactly. And there's an argument to say, well, not everyone can have special treatment, but there should be some degree of differentiation towards someone if they've got a physical disability. There should be an awareness. That's what it is. It's awareness. An awareness of what your impairment is. I remember that initial dance lecture we had Craig on that first dance lecture. He came up to me and he seemed really pleased with himself. He said, oh, I've done some research on cerebral palsy, so don't worry, I know what I'm doing. If you know anything about CP, you know that no two people are affected in the same way. So you can't just search it generally. You need to ask people what they can and can't do. And don't be afraid to kind of ask people what their limitations are. Don't kind of walk on eggshells around it. If you ask uh, candidly, like, is this going to be okay? Most people, or at least I would feel that you're taking my needs into consideration and not thinking about it generally, more specifically. And I had some of it in uni as well. Not in terms of access to the curriculum or access to the work, but a general lack of understanding of what the impairment was or how it affected me. I had one of my lecturers ask if it would ever get better or improve. You know, there are appropriate questions and inappropriate questions. And in that instance, that line of questioning was inappropriate to those circumstances. Knowing where the line is, I think we just need to have more awareness that people like me, people with CP, do belong in these places. But we all have different needs. And just be accommodating and listen. Don't assume what I need. Listen, I know what I need better than anyone else does. Just take what I'm saying into account. And if I need something implemented so that I can access something implemented, and I'll be able to access it on a level playing field with my, alongside my non-disabled thoughts. Do you know what I mean? Yes, definitely. And that would be the ideal, wouldn't it? I mean, do you think since the introduction of the 2010 Equality Act that things have changed and progressed for the better? You know, from the inside looking out, as it were. You've already spoke to some degree about your experiences at school and at university. What about professionally? Have you noticed a change in attitudes or does it feel like it's all just a tick box exercise for organisations trying to implement these changes? And have you felt marginalised within your own profession? I know that's kind of three questions in one, but I think they all link nicely. Yeah, they all link. And um, I think this is partly the problem with legislation that is a diktat that organisations have got to follow. 
So sometimes it can feel tokenistic. And you don't know whether it's tokenism or not sometimes. You know, if you sent, if I sent a play to uh, a theatre and I've told them that I'm disabled, have they just arranged to have a meeting with me because I've, because they haven't spoken to a disabled writer this year? Um, so sometimes I, I don't mention it on emails and um, I remember, um, do you have Game of Styles from Theatre Nanog? No, I don't think I do. Oh, she's lovely. Um, I've done some weird experience with her in the office recently, but the first time I met her, I, I didn't tell her I had stupid. I went for a meeting at Theatre Nanook and she said, oh, you didn't tell me you were disabled. Um, for me, it's like I shouldn't have to disclose that if I don't want to. It shouldn't be a thing for other people. It absolutely shouldn't be. I can disclose it if I want to. And sometimes it's beneficial in terms of opportunities within the arts. Sometimes you can use it to your benefit. A bit of positive discrimination at work? Absolutely. There are things that I've done within the arts and wheels that I wouldn't have been able to do if I didn't have CP, you know? There are things, there are opportunities that have come my way that I've been able to reap benefits of that I wouldn't have been able to if I wasn't disabled. Um, but I feel sometimes that there is, some people have this perception that because I have a physical disability and a speech impediment, but impairment, but that also I might have a learning disability or a cognitive disability and that sometimes is harder to kind of persuade people otherwise and just to kind of show that I am capable. I think most people I've worked with are really open and checking my needs and working with me. But I think the the minority who are still kind of not scared by it, but you know what I mean, they don't quite know how to react because they maybe haven't had, they, maybe they haven't worked with a disabled artist before. So it makes them uneasy. Yeah. Like, what, what should I do? How should I act? But the truth is, you don't need to act any differently around me than you would around any other writer. My disability doesn't affect the quality of my playwriting or my ability to work creatively with you. So um, it shouldn't affect the creative relationship that we have. And I think also, like as, as a disabled writer, I feel, especially in uni, I was pushed to write about the disabled experience, whatever that is. To write about my experience of having a disability. I've tried to be truthful and accurate about that, and I've struggled to find that voice. My voice? I, I've written disabled characters who had different experiences to me. Yeah. I, I don't think I need to write autobiographical work. I think I need to write work that has strong characters in it who may or may not happen to have a disability, but that might not be relevant to the 
Absolutely. Which so much of the theatre industry is, unfortunately. That brings me on nicely to my next question, actually. So in the world of acting, there are many disabled actors that are massively underrepresented within this industry. So I just wonder, how important is it to you as a disabled playwright that a disabled actor is cast within that role? Even if the disability is different from their lived experience, bearing in mind that disabled actors are disproportionate within the arts industry. It's imperative. It's imperative because historically we've seen portrayals of disabled characters on stage and screen that are not authentic, that are not accurate to the lived experience of most disabled people. And there is a myth that is circulated that there are no disabled actors out there. I saw a production of a piece end of last year in London called Teenage Dick, which was a adaptation of Richard III set in an American high school where um, the actor who played Richard had hemiplegic CP, and there was another actor in that production who was a wheelchair user. And to see disabled actors on stage in a London production, for me, as a disabled actor, was fantastic. Playing disabled roles, where the representation is authentic, you know, and that shouldn't be rare. That shouldn't be a rare thing to experience, but unfortunately it is. And you have so many 
films mainly, film and TV mainly, where a non-disabled actor is hired to play a disabled character because it will sell films. It will sell films or gain more interest to the film. And yeah, the representation will not be authentic because they don't have anything like that lived experience. And especially if the film has been written by a non-disabled writer, that they're, they're not taking inspiration for, for that character from something that they've experienced. You're not going to have that authenticity. So fundamentally, it starts with writers. It starts with more disabled writers being read, being recognised, being read by theatres, having their work developed. And then, it, then it's about access to training for actors. Drama schools, a lot of them aren't accessible or don't have the facilities to, to be, they might say they're accessible, Kai, but doesn't that, just because they have a ramp and people yeah. mean that they are, but we need more trained disabled actors. So that's two things, writers, more actors getting out there. We have that's some fantastic writers like Tom Wentworth, who's a Cardiff-based writer, who's disabled. There are people out there doing this work, but they're not getting the recognition that they are. It's about access to training. It's about getting actors in the room for those parts. Getting in the room is half a battle. Um, and it's, about, it's also about non-disabled writers. Write it. If you're going to write a disabled character, great, but make sure you've done your research. Make sure the representation is authentic, because what people see on the stage and screen has an effect on their perspective, on their perception of disabled people generally. So if they see a film about a quadriplegic man who wants to end his life because he can't deal with being disabled, they're going to think that generally that's how people with quadriplegia feel. And uh, that has not got a fact to societal perspectives. And I, I'm not exaggerating it leads to people thinking about things like eugenics and assisted dying legalisation. Let's not have that debate. But it brings these things to the table where they wouldn't have been brought to the table before. And sometimes it gives um, dangerous people the opportunity to wear their, their evilest views. Uh, if the representation isn't right, and um, it has a knock-on effect. Do you know what I mean? Definitely. I mean, I wouldn't really call myself a playwright, but I'm a director and I devise pieces of work. And I'm passionate about developing work with marginalised groups. And I think you're absolutely right. How can I, as a director and playwright, develop an authentic character? And okay, I recognise that I'm creating a character and it doesn't have to be a lived experience, but how can I make it an authentic portrayal? How can we give the audience something genuine if we're not developing these characters and these stories alongside disabled people? Yeah, and it's about having that awareness. And it's about being open in terms of your process for you as, as a divisor or a director in that situation. Who have you got in the room? Who is in that room? 
what experiences did I have? What did I add to the development of this piece? And I think more directors need to think about that. We, we have got so much good work happening in Wales. I mean, taking flight. Yes, I've met Elise a few times and the work they do is fantastic. A youth theatre for deaf people, deaf young people, which eventually... I don't think this is the game, but what hopefully it will do is give young deaf actors a training, which could then lead to more professional deaf actors in the industry of Wales, which can only be a good thing. We've got Kate O'Reilly, her work is now breaking through into the mainstream. More people are seeing Kate O'Reilly's work, seeing what a fantastic playwright she is. And it's about being seen as much as anything. There's a fantastic playwright and performer called Katie Carrier. She's nonverbal and uses AAC, which is Alternative Augmentative Communication. She's done a project called The Unspoken Play, which features a fictional character who's 19 years old and has no speech. Within this play, we see her quest to find a voice. I think you're definitely right, Kira, and it, it is about having the appropriate training opportunities. I mean, I recently lectured at Cardiff Metropolitan University. I delivered the Drama in Perspectives unit in February, just gone. And through the series of lectures I delivered, we looked at the alternative theatre movement. Um, part of what we discussed was disability theatre, LGBTQ plus theatre, feminist theatre, political theatre, reminiscence theatre. And though political theatre was sort of the through thread of our discussion, I did find them asking, well, it's acting. Surely a non-disabled person can act like a disabled character, just like a straight person can act like an LGBT person. And I said, yes, but you wouldn't black up a white person or white up a black person to play a character of a different ethnicity. So I said to them, you know, there are just fundamental things that you cannot do or that you need to have the experience of in order to play a character authentically. Do I ask you, um, as a member of the LGBT community, how would you feel if a uh, straight actor who's played as an LGBT Funnily enough, my next question was going to relate to that. You know, given the introduction of the 2010 Equality Act and taking into consideration things like the protected characteristics, where do we draw the line? Should only LGBTQ plus people play LGBTQ plus roles? You know, there is a strong tradition of pantomime in this country. And within that tradition, you commonly have men playing a pantomime dame. Should we have only transgendered actors playing those roles? Or perhaps transvestites playing those roles? And if we do that, should you only have Muslims playing the role of a Muslim character? Or Christians playing the role of a Christian character? And if we do go down that road, what do white, middle-class, straight, non-religious, non-disabled actors play? Are they suddenly out of work? Or should the focus be about putting some balance back into the mainstream world? about giving those underrepresented groups some visibility and a platform to be heard. I guess, first and foremost, the 
decision comes down to the director and I suppose the actors that actually put themselves forward for the audition. I personally feel strongly that transgendered characters should be played by transgendered actors because they are massively underrepresented within the, the media, as are LGBTQ plus actors in general. I mean, I am a white gay woman. However, I have played many white straight characters. I mean, obviously I am white, but I'm not straight. Does that mean I shouldn't have gone for those roles? That's a whole other podcast, really, because there are very few LGBT characters written in mainstream plays. So if you just limit yourself to playing those roles, you know, you're going to find yourself out of work for a large part. I don't know what the answer is, but I do feel strongly that in terms of underrepresented groups, it is important that they do have a platform to be heard. I mean, a very good friend of mine who is an actress a straight woman, white, Christian. She auditioned for a documentary-style series called Don't Panic, I'm Islamic. Now, it was uh, created by an Islamic lady, and she wanted someone to be the face of Islam. And it was done very much like a reality TV show, sort of a Britain's Got Talent-style audition. And she had to go in introduce herself, say something a bit zany, say how she would promote the face of Islam. And then she got picked to be this, this face, <laughs> you know, and she, she went shopping, she bought the clothes, she wore a burqa, but she's not Islamic. She's not Muslim. She's a white Christian actress. I mean, her faith is irrelevant. I just mention it because this was a documentary drama it was done in a documentary style, yet she was playing a character. That just sits a little bit uneasy for me. Kieran, I wonder if you could tell us your views on that. Yeah, I feel uneasy about that. It's a, like you say, it's where do you draw that line? And is there a line to be drawn, you know? Because when people kind of make up arguments against this, they go to the extreme. Oh, are you saying that, you know, we should only have real soldiers playing soldiers? It's not that. It's about acknowledging what protective characteristics are and um, being, being intelligent with casting, really, and taking note of the social identity of people. That, that's the important thing, the social identity of people. Well, thanks, Kieran. It's been great chatting to you. I guess as a final thought, you've talked about the importance of things like training and having access and the tools, if you're disabled, to be able to take part in the training, to be able to train as an actor or playwright or director. Where would you signpost anyone wishing to pursue a career as a playwright or director or performer uh, if they have a disability? How do they take it to that next level and what would you recommend? As a young person, if you're interested in the arts, generally get involved with your local youth theatre. Find out what their access policy is. Do they have an access policy? If not, why not? See how you can get involved, but also more generally, you can contact companies like Taking Flight, Mode Right, a disability arts company are brilliant. They've always been brilliant with me. 
But yeah, get involved. Make sure your voice is heard. Like, make sure you remember that you know what your needs are better than anyone else. So don't be afraid to be pushy about what your needs are. Be foresight. And hijinks also. Fantastic history of, of producing work if you have a learning disability. But get yourself out there, get doing things, get to know people within the industry. You know, make a space for yourself because no one's gonna sign close to your work if you don't. Realize that there are training schemes that are accessible or can be made accessible. And also be aware that they may not have had someone like you applied before. Be aware that you, you're gonna be kicking them ropes and be prepared to be the expert in that room. And you know yourself better than anyone else. So just get out there and start making things. That's brilliant. Cheers, Kieran, and thanks so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thanks, Kai. Tune in next time when we talk to the pastor. Hi, I'm Steve Evans. I'm a pastor and iconoclast. I'm a blogger asking questions about gender, privilege, spirituality and Star Trek sometimes. I'm a wannabe novelist and public speaker. Lucky Land Slots, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.